0: This afternoon, we will be moving into the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism with regards to our deliverance, and we'll be focusing on the mediator and deliverer whom we must seek. So in connection with that, we'll read from Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 36 to 50, but we'll be paying special attention to the verses 40 to 47, You'll be able to find that on page 1189 of your pew Bible, Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went down to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. And when they had, uh, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, the word of God. We now come to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5, and you'll be able to find that on page 521 of your book of praise. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal, that's punishment in the immediate now, temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor. God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we, by ourselves, make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Beloved congregation of our Redeemer and King, This afternoon, we enter in together to the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, over the last number of weeks, we've brought our first series in the Catechism to a close. Following the pattern of the Book of Romans, the Heidelberg Catechism dove headfirst into the reason for our misery. We examined how we know that we stand condemned, namely, through the law of God. As we read in Romans 3 verse 19, the law is written and laid out for us that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held guilty before God. God's demand is for our heart service. It's for the obedience that reaches down to the very core of a man or a woman's being. Christ's demand that we express perfect love towards God and each other as the fulfillment of the law exposes the fact that we all stand guilty before God because not one of us can reach that standard. Now, that's not to say that God created man that way, and that's what we saw next as we move through the Catechism. God created man good and in His image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. But mankind plunged themselves into sin willingly, deliberately. We did it to see if we could create a world for ourselves that was better than what God had to offer. We continue in that pattern every day. Every time that we disobey God, even in our fantasies, we're creating a world where we are God and we dictate what's right or wrong we try to create a world for ourselves that's better than what God has to offer. It's so easy to blame others for that. But the Bible and our catechism remind us that we need to step up and take responsibility for our own actions and sins. Certainly, we're inclined to all evil because of the sin of our first parents. But that aside... When we look at the world in a practical sense and see our actions, we know who is doing them. We're not puppets on strings. We might say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 I don't know what I do because what I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. But we know that it is we who take that deliberate step in sin. Now, we can point our fingers at everyone else. We can say that it's our parents' fault or our wife's fault or husband's fault. We can say it was due to the bad influence of our friends at school or our siblings are responsible. To put the blame on others has been the pattern since the earliest moments of history. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were happy to throw someone else under the bus, even in the Garden of Eden. Anyone would have responded in the way that I did, But not everyone does. And even if almost everyone did, that doesn't make us any less guilty for having done it. What the terrible, perfect standard of the law teaches us is that as far as our own thoughts and actions go, the buck stops here. That is the depth of our sin and misery, which is laid out for us at the beginning of the catechism. The buck stops here with me. Those other people, they'll have to face the tribunal of God for their own sins. Even those that may have made me myself feel freer and readier to sin. But when it comes to my own sin, the buck stops with me. And because the buck stops with me, and I can't save myself, I desperately need a deliverer. Today we'll be looking at two people whom Jesus brings to this realization under the following theme and points. The mediator and deliverer we need. And we'll see, first of all, the two who come to Jesus. Second, the daily increase of our debt. And thirdly, the one forgiven much, loves much. To make full payment of our sin, we need to understand, get a proper understanding of our debt Our Lord Jesus Christ gives us a picture of why this must be. Our Lord begins in the setting of a meal at the house of a prominent man in the city, a Pharisee. While he's at this man's house, a woman walks in with an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, something that would be used as a type of perfume. Now, ordinarily, this might not have been surprising, As Simon seems to have been a wealthier man, servants would have been coming and going. Guests might have been dropping in to see this rabbi, this teacher that Simon was hosting. But there's something different about this woman. She comes in weeping. She stands before the feet of Jesus and pours expensive perfumed oil over them, and she kisses his feet. Kissing the feet was a sign of extreme gratitude. Perhaps she had heard his sermons and had been deeply convicted by them. Maybe he had had interactions with her in the past. Our passage here doesn't let us know. But what we do know is that her appearance was absolutely shocking to the other people in the room. You can almost hear the whispers going up in the room. This woman was a sinner. The scornful way that the word sinner is used in this context makes it clear that she was likely known as a prostitute in the community. It's this that causes Simon to immediately look down on Jesus. He doesn't say it, but he's thinking it. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Clearly, Jesus isn't a prophet. Simon, as a Pharisee, was one of the righteous ones. He would never interact with a woman like this, much less let her touch him. Walking down the street, such a woman would make his skin crawl. Her sin would be like a scarlet letter marking her out for the world to see. He wouldn't look at her with sorrow or compassion. He wouldn't see someone trapped in the prison of her own making, trapped in the sins which her own choices brought and her own circumstances brought on her. He would see her as a prostitute, one who has led many people astray, standing on the street corners, luring young men to destruction, encouraging them to sell their souls to corruption for the sake of mere money. What kind of person does that? Causing someone to risk their own soul only for the sake of money, breaking apart family bringing disgrace and shame on households. He would have have close to his heart the words of Proverbs 6, verse 25 to 26, Do not lust after the prostitute's beauty in your own heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. You're no more than a way for her to pay for her next meal. And Proverbs 23, A harlot is a deep pit. And a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. And here was Jesus letting this sinner touch him. If he was a prophet, surely he would know what kind of woman this was, wouldn't he? She was hell-bound. She was hopeless. A child of Israel who had wandered off so far that there is nothing left in this Pharisee's heart but disgust for her. And he was right. She was all those things. She had reduced men to a crust of bread. She had likely broken apart families brought disgrace and shame on households. She was a sinner and greatly deserving of punishment. As we read in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. She was deserving of God's wrath for everything she had done. Perhaps you feel that you can relate to the sorry state of this woman. You've gotten yourself into a right, proper mess. Your life somehow has turned into a disaster because of your sin. And there are ripples from your own actions that affect your your husband or your wife, that affect your children or your siblings, that affect your friends or your neighbors. Your sin has terribly grieved God. Rightfully, you deserve nothing but His wrath. Like this woman, you ought to stand condemned before the throne of God. But she was not alone in her sin. And to illustrate this point, Jesus addresses Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, Teacher, say it. And Jesus responds, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. Two debtors. There is no one person who is free, while the other is a slave to death. There are two debtors. Simon himself is not without sin either. He was a debtor. He owed God. Simon the Pharisee, full of pride, looking at this woman, this sinner, in front of him and not realizing that her desperate condition was a mere reflection of his own. Simon, the picture of every man or woman that stands before God and considers himself or herself more righteous and more deserving of God's grace than another. For we all stand before God as those who are dead in sin. Certainly there are sins which grieve God more. Don't make the mistake of thinking that since a sin is a sin, it doesn't matter if you go one step further in it. There are sins which do grieve God more. But all sin is evidence of the corruption which still remains in mankind. All sin is a reflection of death. The wages for all sin is death. And that included the sin that was in the Pharisee's own heart. That included the pride in his heart. That included the fact that he despised this person whose sins were much more apparent than, to the world than his own were. You see the very perspective of this Pharisee, looking at this woman and elevating himself above her because he felt that she was much worse of a sinner than he was, was the evidence. Now, you'll find the evidence of hypocrisy in the life of the closet drinker or the one who looks at pornography in private. Those who absolutely humiliate and belittle others for the least little bit of sin that can be found in their lives and yet don't deal with those deep seated issues. You'll find evidence of this in the person who talks down about his wife or her husband to others. Not legitimate concerns with a desire to correct a brother or sister in Christ and lift them up again in repentance, but simply out of a desire to make others share in the disgust they feel for their spouse. You'll find evidence of this in pride, gossip, slander, and secret hatreds. We know that people who act like that and yet present themselves as morally superior are hypocrites. But it's not just in the obvious sins that you'll find an attitude like Simon's either. There's no evidence that he was involved in any of the above sins. And yet he still runs into trouble for thinking, certainly I have my faults, but I would never stoop to the level of that person. God must be thinking, God must be more pleased with me because He needs to forgive me less. I am relatively pure, and this woman is not. Therefore, I can look down on her. Jesus, if you were really a prophet, you would know what she's like, and you wouldn't have anything to do with her either. A true prophet wouldn't be a friend to those people. A true prophet would be like me. I keep myself pure. But what Jesus is doing here is not partying or partying with people who are reveling in sin. The Bible has much to say about the company you keep. We read in the book of Proverbs, you're not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. This also isn't a case of what Paul describes in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Do not... Be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. No, what Jesus is doing here is not celebrating with those who are reveling in their sin, but what Jesus is doing is opening his heart to a repentant woman, a woman who is broken by her sin, a woman who seeks restoration, And the reason for the depth of his compassion to her in this situation is her humble approach. Brothers and sisters, the attitude of this woman should be the attitude of all of us. How often don't we treat Jesus in our lives like Simon did? Jesus said to him, Here, I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. How often don't we have it that we treat Jesus in this way in our own lives? We have... The basic necessities laid out. We interact with him on the most basic level. Simon, he invited Jesus into his home. It was a sign of a certain amount of respect. But he didn't do anything beyond that. Didn't extend to him the most basic of decent necessities for a traveller who is coming in. Washing the feet, being able to clean up a little bit—that's what you did if you were a host. How often don't we treat Jesus in that same way? Coming before him in prayer, and just, just leaving him as soon as we can. Spending time in his word but only doing it quickly so that we fulfilled our obligation and then moving on to the next thing. Maybe even speaking to our children about it, but only in the most basic sense, not showing the depths of His grace in our lives and in their lives. How often don't we treat Him like Simon treated Him, We come before the throne of God and of ourselves. We come with nothing to offer Him but our sin. We come with empty hands dragging behind us a mountain of debt. Now, you may have heard me draw your attention to this particular passage before, Luke 17. But it's important to be reminded of it again, especially in the context of today's sermon. We read in Luke 17, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he was come in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Even our perfect service doesn't outweigh our debt. Rather of ourselves, if we even could possibly perform it, Perfect service would be nothing more than carrying out what God required of us. And anything less is, as our catechism describes it, daily increasing our debt. The question may then arise, well, isn't God merciful? I didn't sin as bad as the next guy. Won't he just let it slide? And that was Simon's attitude as well. He hadn't sinned as badly as this woman, and if God dealt well with anyone, it would certainly be him over and against this woman. God is indeed merciful, comes the reply, but he's also just, as justice is one of God's perfections and the one that almost everyone in this world would deeply appreciate as long as it isn't aimed at them. As justice is one of God's perfections, it means it can't be set aside. It's an integral part of His character. You can't face God's justice and mercy off against each other. They aren't two attributes of His that go to war against each other. God does not sweep sin under the carpet, and so His justice must be satisfied. Because God is infinite, that means just a little bit of wrath is a little bit of infinity. And that's a lot of anger. Because he is holy and perfect, no sin goes undetected. His holiness and glory caused the prophet prophet Isaiah to cry out in terror, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It shines a spotlight on the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. God's justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. No mere creature can bear the burden of that wrath. No one can stand up in the face of this. And yet through Christ, yet through Christ, we're forgiven, we're clean, we're purified. True God and true man, able to bear our sins in the flesh because he himself was true man and able to bear the weight of God's wrath because he is true God, he is true man, and is true God. The recognition of the forgiveness that God brings is what brought this woman weeping before Jesus and kissing His feet in gratitude. She had been brought to see the reality of her sin and the immensity of her debt and the beauty of God's grace towards her through Jesus Christ. She may not have understood it, in the full way that we understand it, having passed through the era of the cross, seeing the cross from the other side. But she understood it in the way that was necessary. This brings us to our third point. This woman was deeply humbled. The Pharisee, on the other hand, couldn't understand how such a person could be forgiven at least I haven't sinned that much he said in his heart and so God will forgive me but who is she to come here but then we find what Jesus says to them there was a certain creditor who had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 and when they had nothing with which to repay he freely forgave them both tell me therefore who will love him more Simon, this woman does owe God. You're right about that. She owes him ten times more than you do for the way she's lived her life. But look at the difference in your attitudes. Again, we read, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. What's Jesus saying here? He's not saying that her love was the basis of her forgiveness. It's not because she loved that she was forgiven. Let's read the first part of verse 47 again. Therefore, I say to you, therefore, I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. That word for is important, not because, but for she loved much. Her love was the evidence of her forgiveness. When you come before God praying for forgiveness, the inclination of your heart should be one of sorrow, not of duty. It should be one of sorrow because you have actually grieved someone. But when you you do show this sorrow, When you do show the sorrow coming before God, it's a demonstration of love. You're not sorry if you don't care that you've grieved someone. You're not sorry if you ask forgiveness out of duty. Just ask your child to say sorry to a sibling when they don't feel like it. That's no sorrow. That's no sorrow. You can hear it in the tone of their voice. But if you apologize because you love someone, then there's true sorrow. It's not regret. It's not feeling bad because of the consequences of your actions. It's a deep sadness because you sinned against someone. You disrupted the relationship between yourself and them. And that's the evidence of what we see in our approach to Jesus. Weeping, pouring out fragrant oil on Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair to dry them of the tears that she spills on them, she expresses her sorrow for her sin and her love and devotion, her gratitude for her Lord. Her sin has disrupted her relationship with God and that grieves her deeply. To highlight the truth that her love was evidence of her forgiveness, Jesus says to her, Your sins are forgiven. You don't see this as clearly in the English translation, but Jesus is using a Greek verb here that is a statement of fact. It's a statement of something that is a fact, not something that He is applying to her. Your sins are forgiven. It's a statement of fact. It has already happened. She is living in a state of forgiveness. And He's saying this not to assure her of her forgiveness but to grant her recognition of what is already a reality, her new life and forgiveness among God's people. To give her recognition of her new life was a beautiful encouragement for her. It was and is a profession that none are too far gone in sin to be reached by Jesus. The more the sin, the more the forgiveness when that person comes to Jesus. And the more the forgiveness, the more the gratitude. The worse the sinner, the more dramatic the change wrought by the gracious intervention of God. As Jesus said, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Do we seek half a mediator, do we seek someone who will fix us? Or do we seek someone who dragged us from darkness into life? Who dragged us from death into life? Do you see him as the one who can do the same for your husband and wife, your son and, or daughter, your brother or your sister or your friend? Do you treat Jesus as your only hope, your mediator and your deliverer? Beloved, seek the mediator, the one who stands in between, the Christ. Seek the one who will intercede. In him you have forgiveness. In him even the worst of sinners can be redeemed and forgiven. When you see those around you who have made a mess of their lives, who have done damage to those around, but are truly repentant, and I mean truly repentant, don't consider them as being less worthy of grace. Than yourself. Look at them and praise God for his mercy in sparing you their experience. There's a story of John Bunyan, a former slave trader who turned pastor, and he's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Walking down the street one day, he saw a drunk passed out in a gutter. Now he had every chance to scoff at this person. Every opportunity to say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man, but rather I fast regularly and tithe and do all kinds of other good things. But that's not what he said. He looked at this man in the gutter and he said, there, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Don't humiliate and belittle those who suffer in darkness in your lives. Where there are concerns, voice them. That's so important, but don't humiliate them. Show sorrow and compassion mixed with fear, seeking to snatch them from the flames of hellish fire. As Jude says, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Seek to avoid their sin at all costs that may even mean putting safe barriers into place between you and them. But do reach out to each other and let them know that as they repent, they stand forgiven in the sight of God. And when you come before God in humble gratitude, come before God in humble gratitude yourself as well. Pray for the Spirit to search you and to know you. Examine your inmost thoughts and bring them before God, praying for forgiveness each and every day. And know, know that as you repent, you stand forgiven as well in the sight of God. You who are forgiven much, love much. The more you expose your life, the more you look at those around you and recognize that they are but for the grace of God, go I, because I have every inclination of the heart that is the same as theirs, but it was God's grace that kept me close. The more you recognize that, the more you'll be able to understand the full depth of his forgiveness. And in this, we can find the confidence that this reality drives us not away from God, but towards him. If we see him as a father who's constantly disappointed in us, we'll we'll run from him when we stumble and fall. We'll bury our faces in our hands, ashamed that he would see us fail. And we would flee. But as we saw with this woman, Christ makes it that such a response isn't necessary. We have a Savior who looks on us with compassion. We have an older brother who lifts us up. Become like a toddler, walking to his father, and know that because of Christ and in Christ, your failures, your tripping and your falling, doesn't become a reason for him to turn away, but rather the fact that you get up again by the power of his spirit and keep on toddling towards him with a childlike faith and trust that this becomes a reason for God to smile on you because he loves you and that ought to cause you to run that much faster into his arms. Crying out with gratitude, shouldn't it? Because you who are forgiven much, love much. Amen.